Our passage today begins in verse 14 of chapter 9. Matthew writes, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Father, thank you that you have preserved your word for us through the centuries, that we can be here this morning once again hearing your voice speak to your people. And Lord, we look to your word to bring faith to our hearts, to bring insight and illumination by your spirit into our lives that we might be living for your glory. Help us to see you in your word. Help us to encounter you in your word, that our joy may be full as we learn more about the saving grace of God. Lord, thank you for this time to gather as your church. What a privilege it is. And we are very, very grateful. Amen. One of my children's favorite books when they were growing up was a book called Where's Waldo? I'm sure many of you parents know um, about this book, Where's Waldo? And as you well know, it's a book about a man named Waldo who would be hidden among hundreds, if not thousands, of other look-alike Waldos. But you had to find in this book the real Waldo. The, the book really should have been called Who's, Who's the Real Waldo? And hours I spent hours upon a- agonizing hours with my children sitting on the sofa trying to find who the real Waldo was. Now, once my children got older, I moved our book Where's Waldo into its permanent home called a dumpster? So I always knew where he was. (laughs) Now, like Waldo, the Jews for many centuries have been looking for the Messiah among many pretenders, many so-called prophets who came, uh, many charismatic men, many military men. They They were looking for the real Messiah. And many, many possibilities appeared throughout the years, but all proved to be false. And now, as Matthew writes, Jesus has come among the Israelites, among the nation of Israel, among the people of God. And the question is, could he be the one? The disciples and the crowds and the religious leaders, they've seen the miracles. They have seen the calming of the storm. They have seen a leper healed. They have seen people delivered from the demon possessed, they wonder, is this the real Messiah? And now in chapter 9, we have 
we've come to this place where we begin to see Jesus talking about himself. Now, up through chapter 9, Matthew has repeatedly led us to understand who Jesus is. Even in beginning in chapter 1, he, is, he has come to save people from their sins. But now in chapter 9, and we have been in chapter 9 for a few weeks. Now in, in chapter 9, we see that as Jesus begins to reveal who he is, through his words and his actions, opposition begins to come. Now from the beginning of this chapter, questions have arisen challenging Jesus' words and challenging his actions from the scribes and the Pharisees and even John the Baptist's disciples. Who is this man, and why does he say the things he says, and why does he do the things he does? But behind this all, and the context behind this chapter, starting in verse 1, the context that Matthew wants us to understand is this. God has come in Christ. We talk, we talk about healing, we talk about fasting, we talk about salvation, we talk about eating with and feasting with sinners, we talk about a lot of things, but overall, Matthew wants us to know that God has come in Christ. Look at verse 1 through 8, 9, 1 through 8, Jesus, and, the, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, now this is a, a, common, a common phrase with Matthew, and behold, he wants us to see, he wants us to grasp what is happening. And, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. His words are challenged when he heals the paralytic. Luke's version tells us that the room in which Jesus was, was speaking in was so crowded that the, the four men who were the friends of the paralytic could not get into the room. And so they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down to Jesus. And then Jesus speaks to this man and it shocks the scribes. Take heart, my sons, your sins are forgiven. And stunned by these words, these, these scribes begin to kind of flutter among themselves. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This man is blaspheming. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts as God would, there is this veiled reference to God. How else would he know? Because he's omniscient. He replies, this is exactly who I am. I am God. I can forgive sins so that you can truly know that I can forgive sins, that I am God. He tells the paralytic, rise and walk. And in their religious prejudice and in their religious arrogance, the scribes totally miss standing right in front of them, the long awaited Messiah, that God has come in Christ. 
And then the next story, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said, here's the next question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The company he keeps now is challenged. The Pharisees did not like the new words of Jesus where he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And now they don't like his new friends. And Matthew here is recording his own conversion story. The gospel is heard. And Matthew, the worst of sinners, a tax collector, a man who betrayed his own people, is saved. And overjoyed, he throws what Luke describes in his version of this, a great feast to celebrate his coming to faith in Christ. And he invites all his many friends, many other tax collectors and many other sinners that they too might become followers of Christ. But once again, the opposition comes to Jesus. Why does this man eat with tax collectors and sinners? And like the scribes, the Pharisees are stunned that Jesus would defile himself by entering the home of a tax collector and by eating with sinners. And they, they ask, why does he do this? And Jesus tells them, it's the sick who need a doctor, not the well. It's the sinner who needs a savior, not the righteous. And that is who I am. I am the savior. And we learn in this story, God has come in Christ to save sinners. And now we get to our passage. And once again, question is asked. And Jesus reveals who he is. The Pharisees are offended that Jesus eats with sinners. And now as we read in our passage, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The Pharisees are offended that Jesus eats with sinners, and now John's disciples are offended, as well as the Pharisees, that Jesus is eating at all, that he shouldn't be eating. Why do your disciples not fast like us? Now, who are these disciples of John the Baptist? Because these are not scribes and these are not Pharisees talking to us right now. John the Baptist was a man of great self-denial. He was an ascetic. He, he would eat locusts and honey, the wild things. He would wear uh, wild clothing, goat skin clothing. And it was a lifestyle that John the Baptist had to try and separate himself from the world. So it's not surprising that some of his disciples would adopt some of the Pharisees' strict regulations, including fasting. And by this time in our passage, John is in prison. And so it appears that some of Jesus, uh, John's disciples have, have now become part with the Pharisees. Now, in Old Testament times, fasting was only required once a year. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Now, there are other times that, that 
Israel would fast, maybe when they were going to war or they were repenting of sin or they were needing wisdom for a situation. But those weren't those weren't required by God. Those were those were motivated in literally by the spirit for a specific time and a specific purpose. But only once a year did God require the nation of Israel to fast the day of atonement. But by the time Jesus appears, the Pharisees had made fasting a requirement twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. They made a law to themselves and John's disciples jumped right in. This was the, one of the many, the mountainous of man-made rules and regulations created by the scribes and the Pharisees in an effort to prove to God that they were godly, they were holy, that they, they merited God's favor. And there were many more rules and regulations that could never really be kept. Listen, they perverted the Old Testament. They took, they took the Old Testament and turned it into a book of regulations and rules and traditions and strict laws that did not exist in the Old Testament. The Old Testament religion, it wasn't a religion of rules, but a religion of the heart. You look throughout the Old Testament and you see the grace of God page after page, the mercy of God in page after page. And yet this is what the scribes and the Pharisees and now John the Baptist's disciples adopted. They stripped out God's mercy and created a heavy yoke of rules and strict regulations that burdened the people so much it was impossible to keep them all. So it's no surprise that Jesus is being questioned here as to why he and his disciples are feasting rather than fasting. And Jesus answers their question. Why, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus answers their question, their accusation with this. It's crazy to fast at a wedding. Who fasts at a wedding when particularly when the bridegroom is with you and the bride is with you? Who fasts? And it's that moment where Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. And it is a veiled reference to who he truly is. God in Christ who has come to bring grace to sinners. God in Christ who has come to bring grace to sinners. No one fasts at a wedding. In Jewish culture, a wedding lasted seven days. Now, I married off two daughters. I would be bankrupt if we did seven days. But that was, that was common to Jewish culture. Seven days of feasting, seven days of eating, seven days of drinking, seven days of celebrating the bridegroom and the bride. Now is the time to feast, Jesus says, to celebrate, to rejoice in why I came. 
bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And again, those who are listening are stunned as they hear Jesus refer to himself as God, as the bridegroom, because that is an Old Testament reference to God. And he has done this again when he did this. He did this when he forgave the paralytic and he told him his sins were forgiven. He did this when he extended saving grace to Matthew and he alludes to his, his reason for coming. He says, I came, speaking of his incarnation, to save sinners. And now he does this here when he calls himself the bridegroom. In, in, throughout the Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, you will see many passages where God refers to himself in, in prophetic words as the husband of the people of Israel, the husband of the nation of Israel. He's their bridegroom. And again, against this, another blasphemous comment, the Pharisees would know well what Jesus is referring to because they knew the Old Testament. In Isaiah 54, just one example, for your maker, the Lord says, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. Calling himself the bridegroom is saying to these Pharisees and these disciples of John the Baptist, I'm God. I am God. And then he goes on to tell them, so don't mourn. I'm with you now. Don't mourn by fasting, Jesus says in verse 15. Don't, don't mourn. I am, I am with you. We rather celebrate Celebrate that I am here. Celebrate that I have brought my new kingdom. Celebrate that I have brought the gospel to you, that I am now among you. And that is why we are feasting, Jesus says. We are celebrating the good news, the good news of my kingdom, that I have come to save sinners, that I have come to forgive sin. I have come to raise the dead to life, but I won't be around much longer. I won't be here much longer longer. Soon I will be taken. And he is, he is veiled reference to his crucifixion. And when I am gone, that, that is when you will mourn. And he makes this crucial point to his disciples. Listen, you see the Pharisees, you see the scribes, you even see John the Baptist's disciples. Listen, he says to his disciples, you cannot mix what they believe and what I have brought. You cannot mix the old with the new. And he goes on to give them two parables. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and the worst and a worse tear is made. In this first parable, Jesus is simply saying, we're not doing a patch-up job of combining your old lifeless traditions and rules and requirements that, that, that never bring true righteousness. The only way into the kingdom is through the grace of God. And if you try to do it any other way, it, it tears apart. It will tear you apart. It's impossible to do this. 
And then he speaks a second parable. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. Again, another reference. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. He speaks of new wine being put into old wineskins. Now, what is he saying here? If you know, understand that new wine, when it was put into a wineskin, if it was put into a proper wineskin, a new wineskin, the new wine would ferment and it would expand and would cause the new wineskin to expand. And because it was, it was a new wineskin, it was malleable, it was, it was soft, it was able to expand. But when you had an old wineskin, which was old leather and it would become brittle over time, you put the new wine in and the new wine ferments and expands, it bursts the wineskin and it ruins both the wineskin and the wine. And that is what Jesus is saying here. Now, commentators and theologians throughout the centuries have a few different perspectives on exactly what this parable means. And I've been tasked to help you understand it today. There is one that I find, I think, is most biblically faithful. And that is that the new wine symbolizes the good news, the the new news that God in Christ has come. This is the new wine of the gospel. The new wine that reflects the new way of life in Christ. Forgiven and saved and cleansed and sanctified and filled with the spirit. And sons and daughters of God. Inheritors of God's promise and bound for an eternal kingdom in the presence of God. All because Christ has come to save. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the new wine that we have been given. Heaven bound not because of self-made rules but because of the gospel which cannot be put into old wineskins. Paul describes it in this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He tells us that, Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the new has come, the old has passed away. That is the gospel that has come into us. The old has passed away. The new has come. And that, that is who we are. The new wine of the gospel cannot be contained in an unregenerate sinner's heart. It's a dead heart. It's a heart of stone. And it cannot receive the new wine of God's saving grace. But a new creation in Christ can. Listen, the the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to know how Jesus could forgive sins. And the old wineskin answer was, he can't. Because only God can forgive sins. But... God has come in Christ. And the new wineskin answer is Jesus can forgive sins because he is both. He is both the great high priest and the perfect sacrifice for sins. He is the incarnate God who has come to bleed and die for our sins that God's wrath and judgment might be satisfied. The Pharisees wanted to know why Jesus is... Jesus fellowshiped with sinners and the old wineskin answer according to their requirements and tradition was he shouldn't because it would defile him and it would make him unclean. But the new wineskin answer in 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to be with sinners. He was a friend of sinners. 
He would go after the one and leave the 99. Jesus Christ came into the world for us. And he brought this wonderful good news. And then here in 9, 9, the Pharisees want to know why Jesus, why 9 14, Jesus, with an old wineskin question, why don't you do, fast like us? Why don't you fast like the Pharisees? And the new wineskin answer is, listen, you cannot fit man-made religion into the gospel of grace. You cannot do that. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Matthew's intent is clear in these passages, and particularly in our passage today. God has come in Christ. He has made us new creations. The old has gone. The new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. But brothers and sisters, even 2,000 years later, we need to understand th- this exists, this, this passage exists for us right now because we are still vulnerable. We are still capable, like scribes and like Pharisees and even like John the Baptist's disciples, to create our own little pathways to godliness, our own rules and requirements, maybe only internal to us, sometimes maybe communicated to others. There are very very subtle traditions and rules we can create, even as Christians. Things we import into our Christian life, like how how we dress pleases God. And you go into some local churches, and you have to wear a coat and a tie on a Sunday morning, and that speaks of being genuinely godly. Or how you school your children. That if you homeschool, you are a more godly parent. We create traditions that we think are necessary to be godly. Oh, if if you're really having a godly marriage, you have date nights. You think, oh, that sounds silly. But it's true. And so much more. We create other, other pathways that we think will, will help us to be and we think make us more godly. And it's not these things are bad. It's just how we think about them. So we, if I read through the Bible in a year, I will be godly. It doesn't matter that I'm reading so many pages. I don't remember one word I, I read two minutes ago, but I've read through the Bible in a year. Look how godly I am. We depth we, we we gauge the depth of our favor with God. I had a really bad day. I got a flat tire on the way to work and, and work was just a mess. And you know what? It's because I didn't have my devotions today. And if I had my devotions today, I wouldn't have had a flat tire and I would have had a great day at work. Or an opportunity to give and I didn't. And that's why I'm going through this financial problem right now. No, that is not how we view God. That is not who God is. And yet we import that and create these traditions or requirements or expectations. And, and Matthew has, has wonderfully laid this out for us. Jesus has, has spoken to us this morning and said, you cannot mix the old with the new. I've come 
Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. And these are the subtle things that we can import into our relationship with God that we must guard against. God, now listen, godliness is not I can do whatever I want. Grace lets me. Romans 6 tells us that is not true. Shall sin increase where grace abounds? Paul writes, no, may it never be, he says. Yeah, we should pray. Yes, we should fast. We should pursue holiness. We, we should fast as Jesus has told us in, in Matthew 6, 16. He says, don't, don't put on a gloomy face when you fast. Don't stand out there and let others know that you are fasting. No, just do it in private and God will reward you. So he's told us that we will fast and he's told us how to fast. But let us do it well, unlike the Pharisees, not to earn God's favor and not for show, but to do it that we might glorify God in the way we think about who God is and the way we think about one another and the way we live with one another and live before God. Brothers and sisters, God has come in Christ and the old is gone and the new has come. Lord, thank you that that you write these words. You wrote these words inspired by the Holy Spirit through these men to instruct us, to protect us, to encourage us this day. And Lord, may, may these words resonate in our hearts. May these words resonate in our minds that God has come in Christ, that the old is gone and the new has come to the glory of God. Amen.